Eric Zhang, you are the CTO of a company called Scalable Press. Welcome to the Anarchist Podcast. Thanks, Cortland. Glad to have you on here. So Scalable Press, super impressive company. You guys are entirely bootstrapped and you're doing over $100 million in revenue. Is that right? That's right. Tell us about the company. What is Scalable Press? What do you guys do and who uses you and why do they use you? Sure, absolutely. So Scalable Press is a printing company and we uh, we started off in apparel. So think about your screen printed t-shirts, garments, that sort of thing, like your local t-shirt shop. And since then, we've expanded to a lot more print types. We actually do all of the printing ourselves in uh, our facilities in the U.S. and we build e-commerce websites on top of that. So our customers are actually across the board, different markets in B2C, B2B, uh, whoever needs printing. And I think they use us because we develop technology that makes that printing more efficient, which means lower cost for our customers, better quality, and better turnaround times. This sounds like a super complex company. On one hand, you guys are a a t-shirt shop. But on the other hand, you have a bunch of e-commerce sites and an API and different actual physical processes for printing stuff. Give me a sense of your role at the company as the CTO. What does that entail on a day-to-day basis? Sure. So I'm in charge of the uh, engineering team, first and foremost. We are uh, building all of the software that powers our actual facilities, the software that's integrating with the printers and other equipment. And on top of that, we build, of course, the API, which is kind of how you get orders and volume into the facilities. And then on top of that, the engineering team builds a bunch of different e-commerce products, different brands that target different markets. How big is your engineering team? So we have about 50 uh, in a couple offices right now. Wow. And how big is the, the entire company? Ooh, um, if you look at the offices, we have maybe close to 150 people now. And then we have a couple hundred more that work in our facilities. Okay. So you're one of the biggest bootstrapped companies that I've ever had on the podcast. I really want to dive into all sorts of specifics here, including how did you get so big? And also, how does a t-shirt company uh, ramp up to over $100 million in revenue? But first, I want to talk about your backstory, Eric, because we have kind of similar backstories. We both came from, I guess, like a high-growth, venture-funded Silicon Valley mindset. And now we're both here working on bootstrapped companies, sort of promoting and evangelizing the bootstrapped business lifestyle. We actually were in Y Combinator together in 2011, as I'm sure you remember. But I want to go back even further than that. Like, What got you into tech to begin with, and what got you into entrepreneurship? When I was in college, I was studying computer science and uh, a couple friends in, of mine, we got together and we would basically build apps and websites uh, after we finished our problem sets. I guess I, at that point, I already knew I wanted to be in tech startups. Just growing up in the Bay Area, it was always, it was always in the air, I suppose. And we applied to Y Combinator in uh, winter for the winter 2011 batch and we got in. And that was a really amazing experience for somebody that was dropping out of college and 19 years old. We raised a seed round. We did that whole Silicon Valley thing. And that was, again, it was super cool, but I was never really satisfied. And I remember distinctly about two years after uh, Y Combinator, there was a, there was a day when I just woke up and I, and I felt like I don't want to go to work today. I don't, I just didn't feel right. Um, and I kind of went on vacation for two weeks to, to relax a bit and, and deal with that burnout. And uh, I, I, I realized what was causing me to feel so depressed about things. And this is where uh, I had to kind of look back to my history to understand. So uh, to give you guys all some context, uh, I started doing entrepreneurship when I was in uh, high school. So the first thing I, I did was I, I used to build a lot of freelance websites. So I would literally go on Craigslist and I'd say, here, I'll build your website for you know, hundred bucks. And, uh, I built a lot of websites until school got busy. Um, and I was studying for the SATs and whatnot. And at that point I actually started contracting out my work. So I, I got these, um, I found these guys in China who were, who could build websites and I kind of managed them while I was in high school. So they started doing the freelance work and I just was the guy that, you know, fixed the English uh, and stuff like that. So as I, uh, as I continued in high school, at some point I realized, well, now that I have more time, um, I started building other businesses. It was very empowering knowing that I could make my own money. And uh, at one point, I was one of the largest drop shippers on eBay of uh, fake mustaches of all things. And later, I discovered that, oh, you could fix uh, fix Blackberries really easily. If you remember back then, they had the Blackberries with the uh, with the trackball. 
Um, so I bought all these blackberry parts and I would buy all the broken blackberries I could find. And I would get together with my classmates and I trained them to just swap out the parts. We then uh, resell them as refurbished. So I did all these little small businesses when I was in high school. And fast forward again to uh, to my Y Combinator startup. You know, we raised $1.4 million we had from SV Angel and Dreesen and all of the brand names. We had our TechCrunch article. All of that was done. And I woke up depressed because I realized that I made more money in high school selling fake mustaches and training a bunch of kids to fix phones uh, than we had as this properly built, you know, Silicon Valley type of uh, type of startup. And that just felt wrong to me. We were at a point where I guess we could have raised a Series A because we had some traction in the open source community. But it just didn't feel right because we never really figured out the the actual business model. So I actually ended up leaving that startup. In a lot of ways, I see that as the start of my current career. How much money were you making as a high school kid selling fake mustaches and repairing blackberries? If you remember, <laughs> it w- it wasn't a ton. Um, I did a, I did some other stuff on the side too. I was also uh, fixing computers locally. I trained my classmates to. Uh, uh, to just go literally go door to door and we'd see who had computer problems like pop-up ads and spyware and things and uh, we'd fix that. So I think in total, I was making somewhere in the like mid five figures. So nothing crazy, but for a high school kid, it was enough to have a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a lot. I don't know any high school kids, at least in my high school, who were who had this kind of entrepreneurial drive. Did you come from a family of business owners or were you inspired by anything in particular or was it just all internal? You know, I've thought about this a lot. And there were two things that I think really formed my, my entrepreneurial spirit, if you will. The first one happened when I was very young. When I was like eight years old, the internet was just beginning to, to become a thing. And uh, everybody was still on dial-up. And I remember one day, I, I was looking for an internet service provider because our previous one through my dad's university, where he was studying at the time, had been shut down and I found a free dial-up ISP and I was so excited. So we, we, I got this set up on our family computer and uh, it was great. It was free dial-up internet. So I used it for like a month. Uh, and that one day the phone bill came and turns out this ISP was free, but it was in the UK and I was in Canada at the time. So every minute I was on the internet was an international phone call from oh. Canada to the UK. And we ended up with like a $1,200 phone bill. Oh, man. And my, my dad was furious. This was when I was like, when I was like eight years old. So I actually feel, felt a lot of guilt from that. And basically after that, I never had an allowance. My parents didn't buy me a lot of stuff. There was definitely a lot of, um, I don't know. I just didn't have access to the things I wanted. I remember distinctly I wanted to buy, uh, buy some video games. There was a girl I liked. That's what it was. There was a girl I liked. This was actually in middle school. There was a girl I liked. And I wanted. she said she wanted some video game. I was like, I'm going to buy her this video game. I had no money. And that's when I started going on Craigslist to do freelance work. That didn't work out. Turns out, you know, you can't just buy people's stuff to get them to like you. But (laughs) I did discover that, you know, I could do work, I can make my own money, and I could do what I wanted with that money. Well, that's a great way to discover it. And it seems to have set you on a path that led to where you are today. One of the things you mentioned, and you just sort of brushed right over it, was that you you dropped out of college to pursue your first startup idea with your, your friends from college and you got into Y Combinator. What was that decision like? Because I, I considered making the same decision probably a dozen times in college and I never pulled the trigger. I never actually dropped out, even though I knew that I had the skill set needed to really build my own thing. Uh, what was going through your head when you made that decision and why were you so confident that it was going to be okay? So I think because of all that stuff I did in high school, going into college, I knew I wanted to do entrepreneurship in some form. And I thought maybe this is something that I can do after I graduate. But especially being in Silicon Valley, it's just difficult to say no to things like Y Combinator and say no to things like term sheets for seed rounds. It's, uh, it really feels like you've, uh, you've accomplished something just getting to that point. Um, so I was excited. I was super excited to drop out of college. My parents were definitely less excited, but I bet, you know, at least it wasn't dropping out to pursue to pursue just a passion. It, it, it seemed like a textbook correct way to build a startup. Okay. And so tell us about the startup that you were confident about enough to drop out of, out of school for. Yeah. 
Yeah, so the company was called uh, Flowtype, and uh, it w- <laughs> I wouldn't say I was confident enough in it because we pivoted immediately. Paul Graham, right before we got into Y Combinator, actually sent us a, a message um, saying, uh, we'll accept you guys in a YC if you uh, change your idea. And so the, I definitely wasn't confident uh, per se, but w- what we ended up building, um, which I, I think uh, was the right choice, was basically networking software that optimize the network connections between uh, different clients and servers. Um, and we released it open source and we got a lot of open source traction, Twitter, and we were speaking at conferences and, and that whole type of thing. But uh, open source traction, unfortunately, did not, <laughs> did not equal business. Basically, they liked you, they didn't like your idea, and you pivoted to another idea that didn't have any sort of business model, which basically was the norm back then. Like 2011, I also was working on a company that didn't have a business model. And (laughs) I remember people coming to talk to us at YC, and they were always founders of companies that basically didn't generate any revenue whatsoever, you know? And that was just kind of how you did things back then. Nowadays, it's different. There are a lot of VC-funded companies that make money from day one. But back then it was kind of the norm to just grow as big as you possibly could. And then, you know, revenue would appear later. Why do you think yeah. it bothered you so much later on to the point where you actually quit, but it didn't bother you up front when you first got started with Flowtype? I think being young and a college dropout, as much as I think entrepreneurs are expected to be visionaries, in reality, we were just kids. I mean, sure, we were smart and we knew our way around computers and programming, but I don't think we were able to see beyond. We couldn't argue against what seemed so correct. The TechCrunch article, the 30 under 30, the uh, what the seed investors were telling us. Everybody was telling us, look, all you have to worry about is building crazy new technology. Don't don't think about anything else. And we're going to give you money to do it. And you're great. And you guys are, are smart because you're doing it that way. And it's hard to say no to that. It's hard to argue against that. Yeah, it's pretty powerful. I mean, that's kind of the stuff that makes us human, right? It's getting status and respect from the leaders in your community, the investors who have the money, who've been around the block a few times telling you that you're on the right path. It's pretty hard to argue against. But in the world yep. of business, you know, anyone who's not a customer giving you money, does their vote really count? Absolutely. I mean, in the end, the the consumer doesn't care, right? Like you said, the customer that will make or break your business, they don't necessarily care about that status or they may not even know about it. And either you've created a product that can create a profitable business or you haven't. So what was it like burning out from your business flow type and deciding to quit? I imagine that can't have been an easy bit of news to deliver to your co-founders. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is hard because these were my best friends. These are the guys that I have been working close with, living together with for uh, for years. There was a moment when I really knew that something was very wrong. And this this is going to sound so ridiculous uh, in retrospect, but I remember going to work and we had a nice office. We had you know fancy monitors and MacBooks and all of that good stuff. And all of us were basically watching Netflix at work. Not every minute, just we ended up watching hours of Netflix at work. And I remember thinking, what are we doing? Like, why? Like, sure, maybe we're all a little bit burned out. We're all working very long hours, but we're just here watching Netflix at work. Our business is not making money. It just seemed fundamentally wrong. And that's, uh, I think that's the moment when I, when I really started questioning whether this was the right direction to keep going in. You know, with the benefit of hindsight, this is, I think, five, six years ago that all of this happened. Is there anything you would do differently if you could go back in time to kind of save the company or, or set it in the right direction? Yeah. And I think the biggest thing I, I realized after years had passed and thinking about the whole situation, I think the reason why none of us really stopped and said, hey, are we doing this the right way? Maybe we need to be pivoting. Maybe we need to rethink our business plan was we were still moving in the right direction, at least according to um, at least according to the Silicon Valley standard. Meaning, our traction open source was there. We were building an interesting technical product, and we were getting to the point where, if you wanted to go back to investors and say, "Hey, let's get an A. Look at all this traction. People love what we're building." You know, maybe we could have gotten something, but it just seemed like nobody cared 
nobody outside our three founders really cared that we would be making money. And that way, there was no pressure to do so. Okay, so you quit. You make a clean break. You're now, Eric saying, a free man, no job, no responsibilities. <laughs> How did you figure out where to go from there? Because you could really go in any direction. Yeah. No, it was crazy. I had no idea where to go. I, I did nothing. So I, I quit in like May. And that whole summer, I really didn't do much of anything. I just worked out and read stuff, read books. That's basically all I did that summer. It's, uh, I think it's, I think for a lot of, uh, one thing that doesn't get talked about enough is what happens when your startup fails. And it's, uh, it's depressing because it's your identity for a lot of people, a lot of their network maybe, or their friends that they see frequently may just know them then as the guy who did whichever startup and suddenly are removed from that. Um, so I actually ended up going back to school. I finished my degree. Um, and after I, uh, finished my degree, <laughs> funny enough, I, I started building more, uh, open source software and, uh, I actually got, got a bunch of smart friends together and we were developing this open source software. And, uh, it got to the point where I was about to raise, I had talked with some old angels that I had contact with before and, uh, it felt like I was about to raise a seed round. And I remember talking with them about that. And then suddenly I realized, holy crap, I'm about to make the same mistake where I, build some cool technology with no particular market. So I actually had like a second reckoning of what am I doing? Why do I keep going back to doing this? Why do you think you keep going back to doing that? You know, I, I, I just like networking software. I still do today. That's even today being at scalable press. I think one of the reasons I'm here is because I get to build really cool networking technology to power our facility. So it's really just like a matter of doing the thing that you like and following into the thing, following into the thing that you like doing, which is funny as a founder and a developer, because that's like the most common story in the world, right? Built yeah. this thing, really fun to build, look up, you know, six months later, turns out nobody wants it. Nobody wants to pay for it. So it's, it's a hard lesson that like I've learned myself as well uh, through kind of the school of hard knocks. Yeah, absolutely. So at the same time, you're going through this whole learning process. Scalable Press already existed as a business. The original founder, Raymond, had gotten started. What's the story of, of what he was sort of up to while you were in Silicon Valley making these mistakes and learning from them? Raymond, uh, actually, uh, both of us went to Cal and we actually knew each other while we were in school. When I was working on these side projects, getting ready to apply to Y Combinator, Raymond was building out Scalable Press and we actually dropped out at the same time. So he dropped out to keep working on uh, the, the business, which we called O Shirts at the time. And I dropped out to work on my startup. We ended up in the same office building. So we grabbed sushi and stuff for dinner. So I, that's how I uh, met Raymond, actually. What was he doing with OO Shirts and what kind of business was it? Yeah, so uh, OO Shirts, which is still there today, we're actually um, working on rebuilding it finally today. But OO Shirts is a t-shirt website. It's the type of website you might go to to buy shirts for your club or for your family reunion or team. And uh, he was scaling it up uh, gradually. So Raymond, when he started OO Shirts, was actually building the website himself. So he taught himself PHP and uh, and built out this website. And he was uh, he had contract printers uh, doing the actual printing work. Did you ever consider joining him at any point in this, this process before you actually joined where you were working on these venture funded companies and this open source software? No, it's like the opposite. Cause it's like, Oh, here's a guy who's building a dinky looking website selling t-shirts. Um, but here I am, you know, at the SV angel, like box suite at AT&T park and, <laughs> uh, eating Tuesday dinners at YC. So I thought I was uh, doing things right. Do you know how well Raymond was doing um, while you were eating at these box suites and he was working on his stinky website? Yeah, so so we drop out at the same time. And at, at that point, when I was uh, enjoying my Silicon Valley persona, he dropped out because O Shirts had hit a $1 million run rate. Jeez, selling t-shirts online. Yep. What are the margins like in the t-shirt business anyway? Because a million dollars is a ton of revenue, but unlike a pure SaaS company, I mean, it's not like, you're selling code here. You're selling actual physical goods. Uh, what, what kind of margins can you expect on like a million dollars of revenue? Yeah, um, you're, you're definitely right. It's not the same as SaaS. So it really depends on the market and where you position the product. But oh, shares at the time was somewhere like 30% margin, which is, I guess, more typical for an e-commerce business. It's, it's interesting because you can, you can have products that are more premium that deliver a 
very high end customer experience and, and have more margin. And you can also have, say, B2B products where it's very low margin. And that's what we look more like today at Scalable Press. We have a diversity of products that have higher and lower margins to, uh, to accommodate different markets. So walk me through some of the early milestones of OO shirts and how it turned into Scalable Press up until the point that you joined. Sure. So Raymond actually founded the business, um, I think, in 2008 when he was in high school. So this guy's also a, a high school entrepreneur. He founded the business basically to get shirts printed for his high school tennis club. He saw what was available out there. He saw the local stores and they weren't good options. They were either slow or expensive or both. And he decided to go about it himself. And he actually found contract printers in China who would do uh, shirt printing for just an incredibly low price, as, as you would imagine. Uh, so he started selling that to local high school clubs. And that's how OO Shirts got started. And he gradually built, uh, built more, and more, more and more features on the website and won more and more customers. So what really got him, when he, when he got close to that $1 million mark when Raymond was dropping out of school... There was a moment when he realized, hey, we can't keep using these Chinese contract printers. The quality's not there. The speed is not really there. He wanted to make the experience better, but he didn't want to raise the prices. So this is actually a really kind of pivotal moment in company history when he decided, look, we have to, we have to do better than, than what these contract printers can deliver us. And at the time, the company didn't really have the capital to build our own facilities. Any sort of manufacturing is very capital intensive. And being a bootstrap business just meant that we had to take more steps in between. So Raymond went, went down a phone book and he just called every local small screen print shop in the U.S. that you could get the phone number for. And he basically took his price sheet from China and said, look, these are the prices I'm paying now. If you can match these prices, the business is yours. Uh, and it, most of the people were like, no, that's, that's ridiculous. This is an insulting price, <laughs> you know, slam the phone on him. Uh, but there were a few printers after much effort that, uh, that would match those prices. And that's how we were able to, or how O shirts finally got the, uh, the printing to be done at us printers. And we were still doing contract at that time. So that's what it was looking like up until, uh, 2013, um, which is near when I joined and when we started building out our own manufacturing. So that's pretty cool. It was just nothing but pure hustle and hoping that people, I guess, would take a chance on you to get from outsourcing, you know, the labor basically to having kind of low quality products from overseas to having the same prices but higher quality items shipped from the U.S. Can never did- underestimate the uh, the power of asking a lot of people. And accepting that many will say no, but you just need a couple to say yes. I'm curious about how the business even got to the point where a lot of people were buying t-shirts from OO shirts. Because as far as I can remember, the, the online t-shirt selling industry has always been super competitive. And I'm sure this is a topic we're going to come back to later on in the episode. But there are a lot of people selling t-shirts online. How does somebody go from, you know, especially an 18-year-old, from nothing to having a business that people are paying you know, millions of dollars a year to get t-shirts. Yeah, I, I have an anecdote that'll, that'll offer some insight to this. So when I was in, going back again, when I was uh, in high school, um, I actually did screen printing for a while. One of the reasons why Raymond and I clicked in, uh, in printing, but um, I was doing screen printing myself. And I realized very quickly that the cost of screen printing does not have to be high really you could get something down to just a few dollars per shirt and you could still be profitable that way. Um, a lot of what people saw as the normal prices were actually very high. This is what got Raymond into O shirts in the first place. And when O shirts started becoming a larger e-commerce website, we were the price leader in that space. In a lot of ways, we still are now through our different brands, but if you looked at, especially in the late 2010s, the pricing, it was not even close. We were consistently 40% cheaper than the next uh, real competitor. And even the even when we were able to bring that printing to the US, the reason why so many people were insulted is the pricing that we were offering our customers, the pricing that we were paying our contract printers is something that made sense in China, but really didn't make sense for the US. And I suspect that the real reason that we got any contract printers in the US at that price level was because you know, it wasn't, it was barely any margin for those pr- contract printers, but it was still business. And some of them just want, were happy to have any volume. And so purely through just low prices, you think that was enough for consumers to kind of discover OO shirts and say, this is where I'm going to buy from as opposed to the other sites. Yeah. I mean, that was the beginning of it. And, uh, 
you know, as with any market, it gets competitive over time. If you lead in any area, somebody will catch up. So that's what we've been up to for the last uh, five years. So tell me about what kind of conversations led to you joining the team after you decided not to sort of repeat your first mistake in Silicon Valley and fundraise for these new open source tools you're working on. Yeah. So I realized that I can't keep building open source software because that does not a startup make, not automatically. Uh, so I kind of went in the opposite direction. And going back to uh, to how I had done screen printing in high school, I realized, oh, printing is a business where I know that the costs online are high, but the cost to produce can be low. So I was uh, I was trying to go back into building a printing business. And then I remembered, okay, back when I was doing Flowtype in the same office building, there was this guy, Raymond, and he ran a t-shirt startup. So he's in this space. And I kind of seeked him out for uh, for mentorship. Um, and I and I went out to his office, to Raymond's office, and I took him out to McDonald's. And at first he was like, <laughs> Eric, why are you bringing me to McDonald's? This is not a good restaurant. And then I explained to him, look, this is not the best burger you could have today. But if you look at the fact that McDonald's and its you know hundreds of thousands of restaurants can deliver this exact same burger experience at this extremely low price very quickly, millions and millions of times, that is something admirable. And that is what I really wanted to do to the printing industry. I wanted to make printing something more accessible, lower cost, and efficient. Uh, and that's when Raymond realized that we had pretty much the exact same vision for what we wanted to happen. And that's kind of how we got started working together. So what was the state of Scalable Press at that time? Like, How big was the company? Did you come in immediately as CTO? Was there sort of a game plan for what you would do once you joined? Yeah. So it's something I give Raymond a lot of credit for. And a lot of entrepreneurs may not have taken this step. When I joined, this was in um, early 2014. Oh, shirts. It was still oh, shirts. Scalable Press didn't exist yet. And the company was just the oh, shirts website. It was doing very well. It had continued to grow. We were in the low teens uh, in revenue. And uh, Raymond paid himself a very low salary. And he was dead set on reinvesting the company's profits into the business. And that was the point when the company really had enough profits to reinvest that we could start our own facilities and build a real engineering team. Before that, all of the website development and technical stuff was done by a, a series of contractors. So the quality was low. And Raymond realized it too. He had taught himself PHP, which, you know, I, 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 <laughs> I give, give him a grief about this all the time. It does not lead to high quality code. Um, and he knew that the business's potential was being limited by its ability to build higher quality software faster. Uh, so I joined and I started building out the engineering team, hired my friends. And that's, uh, that was the first, uh, first step. I was just talking to a buddy of mine last night who was talking about starting a company. And we got onto this topic of how the way that you get started at something doesn't necessarily need to be the way that it ends up. And I realized like there's a consistent theme of people who have taught themselves to code or have outsourced a lot of the code to contractors for their startups where, of course, the initial product is pretty crappy. You know, it's very low quality. It doesn't do all the things you'd like it to do. And even the things that it does do, it doesn't do very well. And yet the people I talked to who've had these situations have still built really successful companies. I mean, Scalable Press, like we said earlier, over $100 million a year in revenue. I talked to Christy Lawrence. Uh, she's got a company called Plan. She basically contracted out her initial app and it got to the point where it literally didn't even work. You know, it fell over and she was super stressed about it until she got another team to rebuild it. But she still built a million dollar business. What are your thoughts on this? Do you think it's important to start with a really you know, high quality code base? Or do you think it's better to just start scrappy without really paying that much attention and get the fundamentals down? Yeah, that's a great question. And my, my smartest friends, the, the best engineers, my friends that are working on the self-driving cars, they come to me sometimes and they're like, Eric, you know, how can you live with a, with a crappy code base? How can you live with any technical debt? And I, I'm, I'm completely with you. I have the opposite view that I, I think it's very important that people recognize when a code base needs to be high quality and when it doesn't, especially for, for us as engineers, it's very tempting to just discount any low quality, uh, any low quality code base as just being a problem or being bad, but that's just not true. I think it's, pivotal that software is developed quickly, at least until you have product market fit, at least until you have some real traction, especially for bootstrap businesses, building software is expensive. If Raymond day one, when he was starting OO shirts, tried to hire a software engineering team, 
he never would have made it anywhere because all of the money would have gone into payroll. It's it's just a, a fact of uh, of what the market looks like today, which means you have to figure out another way to build out that MVP and build out that first success. Yeah, totally agree. And it's it's difficult to see as sort of an individual contributor to a company, whether you're a software engineer or a marketer, or you're in sales or customer service or whatever. Like your world is your world. Whatever you're spending your time on, like that's everything. And it's hard to kind of step back and realize that like it's just one part of what makes the company work. And you can't over focus on any one part of it and try to take it to perfection because you're very quickly going to run into the point of diminishing returns or run into the point where whatever you're working on is coming at the sacrifice of other parts of your business. And you're probably not going to grow quite as quickly if you if you over focus on the code or you over focus on uh, whatever part it is that you're sort of competent in. Yeah. And it, the, the idea that doing things one way is somehow better, I think, is, is, is overblown because especially as a bootstrap startup, as a product that's new, I mean, the only thing that matters is are you getting traction? Are you able to make it profitable or at least a fundamentally sound business in some way? And even today, right, at the scale we're at today, which is much larger, we have all these resources. When we start a new experiment or a new project, the first thing we ask is, okay, what part of this project needs to be high quality and what part just needs to be cranked out quickly because, you know, chances are we're going to throw it away once we learn more about our customer. Okay. So you have joined OO Shirts at this point and you guys are going to turn it into Scalable Press. You're going to start reinvesting your resources and your profits into actually growing the company um, more ambitiously and actually build out the software team. What's the the first thing that you do? So I actually started off by building an API. Which uh, may sound like a very uh, you know engineering uh, engineering thing to do, but at, at that point I was looking at okay how how are we going to look three years from now five years from now, um, and I knew that we had to expand beyond O shirts and the API was the platform upon which we were going to build. So that's when Scalable Press was born. Scalable Press originally was just the name of the API. Was this an API that you guys were going to use for internal purposes? It sounds like something you planned on using, you know, to sort of extend your business into the future. Uh, what was the purpose of the API? Who was using it and what were they using it for? It's, it's pretty interesting. We actually got customers for the API before we built anything internal on top of it. We built it and almost immediately we had people asking, asking us to use it. One of the fun things we did during those early days uh, we had a hackathon where we, we, I built the prototype of API. It did not work, as in you could connect to it and it, it responded to requests. However, it didn't actually get your shirts printed. Uh, but we pretended that it did and uh, and did a little bit of growth hacking in that sense. Uh, we had a hackathon, and that's where we got our first customers. People showed up, and they were like, wow, a printing API. And that holiday season, so this was about six months into my time at SP, people started sending us tons of volume. Yeah. So give me a sense of some of the things this API can do. Like I send, what kind of requests can I send? What kind of things can it yeah, make happen yeah. so on the other side? It, it allows you to do anything that our facilities are capable of doing. And basically, you give us a piece of artwork, like a PNG file. You choose a blank garment from our catalog, give us a shipping address, send a post request, and we will we'll print and ship it to you uh, very quickly. Cool. At the same time, you, you talked about how the other part of your profits you were reinvesting were going into the manufacturing process. What was going on on that side of things? Yeah, so during the same time, we were trying to move away from those contract printers into our facility. So we started leasing these uh, these facilities and started buying equipment and getting our own printing presses set up. And the goal there was, okay, we know we're getting these very low prices from these contract printers. Let's hold ourselves to that standard. Let's see if we can do better. So we started building a lot of software, a lot of integration for the workstations that power these facilities. And uh, honestly, every step of the decision was was made very frugally, and we had to because we just didn't have that much capital to work with compared to, uh, to a company that might have raised a ton of money. I mean, how do you even know how to build a screen printing facility? <laughs> Good question. Uh, many would argue that... Uh, that we didn't. So we we hired people who had run small shops uh, to help us. But it's bizarre because in the custom printing world, there's not a lot of technology. Like what is standard? What most of the graphic keys being printed today is not done with you know automation and technology that you would imagine. So it was this world where I came in knowing how to build software. And we were working with operations people who had experience running screen print shops. And we kind of had to 
educate each other as we went along. Um, and we made tons of mistakes along the way. But through that experimentation, that's, that's where I think we got a lot of our most uh, interesting innovations. Give me, give me a sense of some of these innovations, because I'm intensely curious. Like, what does it look like to actually build a screen printing facility? And what kinds of modifications are you making through the power of software? Absolutely. So um, I'll give you one of the most fundamental ones that I think is, is, is a huge part of what the industry is today. If you go into a local screen print shop or, or a printing shop of any sort, what often happens is the person who's going to do the printing is also uh, processing the artwork in some way. They're prepping it for press. Uh, and oftentimes what that means is there's a computer and they load the customer's artwork file and they might tweak it a little bit in Photoshop or something and then they send it to the press. This is great, but in a efficient, it doesn't scale. In an efficient manufacturing pipeline, you can't have somebody who both is going to be at the computer and interacting with the screen and downloading the customer artwork from the emails and then uh, also operating the press. So one of the first things we did is we set up cloud servers that handled all of the artwork pre-processing, which meant that in the facility, the press operator didn't have to do anything other than operate the press. So very fundamental principle, um, but the technology to do that in the cloud as opposed to in a computer next to the press was uh, was something new at the time. How much were you learning from your competitors? Because other people have built, I'm sure, automated you know printing facilities before. How much of this was you guys innovating? How much of it was you guys sort of figuring out how others were doing what you were aimed what you aimed to do? Yeah. So the I think the interesting thing is at the same time we were building our manufacturing facilities, the the actual printing technology was changing a ton. So before, one thing that's interesting to know about Scalable Press today is that all of our printing processes allow a minimum quantity of one, and we've designed it that way. And right around this time in 2014, printers themselves, and we're talking about printers made by companies like Epson, Brother, etc., were getting to the point where you could do uh, apparel printing one-off at a reasonable cost without a huge amount of setup. And a lot of what we were doing on the e-commerce side and in the facility was enabling this. How can we make a profit selling one T-shirt at a time, one custom T-shirt? And I think that's what uh, that's what was really new, and that's what's really changed the market since. So there really weren't many companies uh, doing that type of printing. We're talking a lot about the product side of things, what you guys are doing to build uh, kind of a product that sounds like no one else really had at the time, or at least wasn't very common. How did you how did you go to market with this? How did you convince customers to use this uh, printing API, which I'm going to assume didn't exist before you guys built one? They signed up for it. The printing API idea was new. Um, we uh, we actually had a brand called Shirts.io that we've long sunsetted that uh, we try to build before Scalable Press with contractors, and basically the technology never worked. So we got a we actually got a bunch of followers on Hacker News. It was pretty much the first printing API. Didn't work very well. Um, and that's what Scalable Press was a evolution of. And from that kind of early set of contacts that we made, we had a lot of customers. And to be honest, even to this day, I don't know where some of those people were, were getting their, their sales. I don't know what they were doing. But the point is, they needed shirts printed and they were willing to pay for it. So we were happy to do it. That's very cool. How do you recover from from a failure and then go on to do essentially the same thing, but a little bit better? You said you started Shirts.io and it wasn't the best API and you guys sunsetted it. What did you do differently to make it better? Yeah, that's a great question. I think a lot of it is, is again, going into the investment in doing things the right way. Because when you're, when you're making things that are different, right? For us, that was, we're building an API that allows you to print things. And we have to make sure that it integrates well with how you actually get it printed, whether it's through a contractor or a manufacturer. It takes a lot of, uh, it takes investment and it took time. That's really what it was. For us as a bootstrap company, that meant we had to kind of wait patiently till we could grow the business to the point where we had the capital to build these things the right way to actually enable us to achieve the vision. Okay, so you guys are reinvesting your profits. You're building this API, rebuilding it. It works. People are using it. You don't know where they're selling their t-shirts, but they're certainly paying you to make these t-shirts. Uh, what do you guys do with this newfound success and this breakthrough of having an API? Yeah, so uh, of course, every everything we build and every sale we make helps add to the to the coffers, if you will, to the war chest. And we realize, okay, well, the logical next step is to build our own e-commerce products uh, on the on top of the API. 
And uh, we actually saw one of our, I guess, competitors. But at the time, they were also customers of us. Uh, they were using us for printing. Uh, Teespring have a lot of success in uh, in the custom t-shirt market. And we realized, okay, I think we can do a better job than them. And we went after that. So that's a, an interesting transition to make because you guys are a bootstrapped company. Like you have to fund everything you do with your profits, basically, literally pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. And the next step you identify was, okay, we don't just want to make t-shirts. We want to actually sell t-shirts directly to consumers. Were there any other options that you guys considered? Like, Why was that the obvious, most profitable thing you could do? I think it all comes down to the company's vision. Our goal is not just to print t-shirts. Our goal really is to make printing more accessible. And it all goes back to that first feeling that Raymond had, that I had of, why are these t-shirts so expensive? Why can't it be done more efficiently, more quickly, uh, and still of a high quality? Why does it have to be that way? And we knew that it wouldn't be enough just to make money as a business. If the goal is just to build a reasonably profitable business, Raymond could have taken the profits when the company was at just $1 million and had an excellent lifestyle business. Um, the goal was to change what custom printing meant to people. We didn't want custom printing to be a big deal. We wanted it to just be normal e-commerce. And to achieve that vision, we have to build the e-commerce experience that will allow people access to the low cost and to the speed that will make printing more accessible. Second question as part of this transition, you're going up against Teespring and your core competency was basically printing t-shirts. I guess with OO shirts, you've done a little bit of a direct to consumer type stuff, but Teespring, like that was their core competency and they were venture funded. What made you so confident that you could do a better job selling t-shirts to consumers than they could? I was absolutely not confident. Um, and <laughs> Teespring is a YC company. I had been a YC founder. I knew how much support that they had, how many smart people that they could work with. And here we are, Raymond and I, sitting in our dinky office, and uh, you know, not having that millions and millions of dollars of venture funding. I, I remember thinking very distinctly, like Raymond, I don't, I don't know if this is going to work. I mean, we'll build it, we'll try, but it, this is this is going to be a big challenge. But Raymond convinced me, and he was resolute in one fact, and his, the fact was very simple. I, I guess what Raymond realized was, at least for that market, the the customer was the creator of the T-shirt being offered for sale, and by making them happy, Raymond felt that we could really capture the creators. And if we capture the creators, then the customers will come along with them. That was the, I think, real insight. And beyond that, what we could offer the creators that Teespring was not offering was better printing at a lower cost so that the creators would be able to earn more of a commission against their their art than uh, than they would on other platforms. Um, and that's really always been fundamental. Oh, Shirts was first successful because it offered lower prices. And what we were doing was using the manufacturing capability we were starting to develop in-house, pass on those savings to the actual customers. So explain to, to me and to the audience what your business model was, what Teespring's business model was, and how it actually worked. Because this wasn't just like a very simple, hey, come to this website and buy a t-shirt type thing. You actually had different parties involved, as you're saying, the creators, the customers, the manufacturers. Uh, what's yeah. the bigger picture? How did it work? Yeah, absolutely. So this is it's, it's very interesting. And I give Teespring a lot of credit for, uh, in my mind, founding this market. Uh, the idea is kind of like Kickstarter for t-shirts. If enough people are interested in some design... Uh, they actually get printed and shipped to the customer. So somebody, an artist or a creator, would create the design, upload it to the website, and then share the link or pay for ads for the link uh, in order to attract customers. And then if people bought it, it would get printed and shipped. Yeah. So that's the fundamental idea. And I think the, the key realization was the customer in this case, in this scenario, is the person who has created the t-shirt design, not the person actually buying it. So a good example is I do this exact same thing for indie hackers. I uh, worked with some artists to get a couple t-shirts designed. And then I used my own distribution channels, the Indie Hackers podcast, Indie Hackers website and mailing list to sell these t-shirts to Indie Hackers users who want to sort of wear Indie Hackers. And what you're saying is that like, basically I'm your customer. It's not the people that I'm selling my t-shirts to, but like I'm the person that you need to serve and make happy because I'm the one who chooses to use your business. And exactly. Um, what are some of the things that you did to serve your customers better than Teespring was doing? 
Yeah, it's it's um, as with any time when you're trying to find product market fit, it's about giving your customer that you've identified everything they could want. It's and it's counterintuitive because if you're the creator of the design, we're paying you, right? You're you're not paying us, um, and the customers who are entering their credit card number, we're we're saying that oh, we're going to pay a little bit less attention to them, and we're going to pay more attention to the person we're paying commissions to, um, and. That really informed how we built the software. So the functionality, the feature set was much more rich on the on the creator side. Uh, we hired marketing people that just focused on community and social media for the creator side. And we really focused on making sure that the creators got as much of a cut of the sale as possible at all. So how did all of this turn out? It sounds like you're doing everything right. You're going up against this you know, 200-pound gorilla who sort of owns the room. Uh, what was the result? You know, it's crazy. So the first thing that happened was Teespring stopped using us for contract printing. I think they realized pretty quickly <laughs> that we had become a competitor. And over the next three to four years, an, an amazing thing happened. So the first thing was uh, when, when this whole on-demand t-shirt market started existing, it was a lot of U.S. creators. So U.S. stay-at-home uh, stay parents and stuff just uploading cool designs, doing a little bit of graphics and, and trying to sell it. But over time, it became an international thing. And you started seeing just all over the world, internet users just uploading designs and offering them up for sale. And a lot of them were terrible designs that nobody would buy, but they were uploading them by the millions. And some of them were amazing designs that turns out, turned out to become viral or got tons of, uh, tons of interest. That's really where we are today. We now have a large international community, and a lot of that is in uh, Southeast Asia. A lot of that is in the Middle East, and they will upload millions of designs. And some of it is generated. Some of it is actually done by artists. It's just anything you can imagine exists somewhere in our database. They try to get it to sell, and, and you know, 95% of the things get zero sales, but 5% of them get tons of sales. Um, so that's that's where we're at today with the with the t-shirt market, and I think our strategy with our website T-Chip to really target those creators and provide tooling for them to be successful and to allow them to experiment is uh, what made us very successful. So it's ridiculous because we started T-Chip with one engineer assigned to that project, and this is when when Teespring was already at its heyday. But I think with the correct identification of the customer, we we were able to get uh, get very far very quickly. So this is a cool model overall. You've got basically one business, but you've really got multiple businesses. And I talked to a lot of founders whose dream it is to, to own a whole constellation of different businesses because they don't want to work on just one thing. They want to work on a bunch of different things. And at this point, you've got your API that anybody can, who's a developer can send requests to and pay some money and get t-shirts coming out the other end. You've got OO Shirts, which is your original t-shirt website, where I guess you're just selling t-shirts directly to customers and all sorts of other apparel. And now you've got T-Chip, which is a sort of Kickstarter for t-shirts thing, where people will design t-shirts, and then uh, if they get enough orders, you'll actually print them and ship them. What else did you design, or what other businesses did you create besides those three? Yeah, we tried a lot of different things, and some of them got more traction, some of them got less traction, but I think you hit the nail on the head. The idea is we want to create multiple businesses and because it's aligned with our vision. So one of the things that has done well for us is uh, we created the Shopify app. So Shopify store owners can get their merch printed through our facilities. We've uh, done some licensing deals basically to help uh, other businesses who have licensed merch that they want printed at a low cost. We've done that. Oh, I guess one of the more different ones is uh, scalable press itself so scalable press although it was just the name of was just the name of the api also became the name of our b2b business uh, so we do b2b printing for all sorts of uh, uh for all sorts of odd odd things there's like a there was a gas station in the midwest like a gas station chain uh that wanted their uniforms uh embroidered we, we do embroidery now uh, one of our newer processes and we did a couple hundred thousand embroidered polos for them there's uh uh, we had a partnership with Adidas for a while. They basically, anything they didn't want to print because the unit quantity was too low for that design. So think smaller schools and uh, sports teams that maybe had less of a following, uh, they would send our way because we had gone so efficient at doing those low quantity runs because we designed our process to have a minimum quantity of one. 
Uh, so we take up a lot of, uh, we take, we suck up a lot of that B2B business as well. And in the end, it's all about creating that more efficient manufacturing pipeline uh, so we can fill that need for as many markets as possible. Do you ever worry about losing focus as a company? Because there's an argument to be made that, you know, one or two of your businesses are extremely efficient, at least in comparison to the others. And maybe if you double down there, that things will be better for you overall. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the that's something Raymond and I actually speak about a lot. And the the challenge there is, can you effectively delegate? I think the dream for a lot of, as you said, for a lot of business owners, and this is kind of what Jeff Bezos has created at Amazon, is create a bunch of uh, general managers, basically mini CEOs who can execute on their own business. Yes, I worry about focus all the time. But I think we're we're trying to figure that out now. We're trying to see, okay, who can take ownership and be delegated the growth of a business because we want to create a system where if it's a business in the custom printing area, we have the resources and the people uh, to give it a good shot. It's a hard thing to do. I mean, you're basically hiring miniature CEOs. It's, it, is, it is very difficult. <laughs> you have to consider it both from the product standpoint, marketing, engineering, um, and all of it. And one of the, again, it goes back to the early decisions we made. We knew this was, this was what was going to happen or what we wanted to happen. And that's why the API was the first thing we built. It's about creating platforms. So even today, the, uh, the credit card processing module, the accounting reporting module that we use across our different e-commerce products is shared code. It's kind of an internal API for building e-commerce products. So you guys are located in San Francisco still, right? Yes, our headquarters is uh, right here in SF. It's not common to hear of such a huge bootstrapped business in SF. I'm sure most of the people you talk to, the other founders you know around here, have all raised money. So let's talk about the, the bootstrapping angle a little bit, because I'm curious how this changes the equation for you guys. Broadly speaking, what are what are some of the different decisions you've had to make because you're a bootstrapped company? Yeah, you know, it's it's really pervasive. It has been there every step of the way. I think a lot of people might look at us and think, oh, well, you guys are profitable. You're doing over $100 million. Like, you're fine. Like, you're, you're past the hump. The reality is that's just not the case. The way we spend money today still is 100% influenced by our, our bootstrapping, by the fact that this money is from the sale of a t-shirt. Every single cent you can tra- trace down to some customer who decided to buy a t-shirt or, or mug or whatever we print now. It just makes it that much harder to spend money in a way that may not help deliver growth for the business. That I, I got so many examples of uh, things that are, I guess were uncommon. And I remember uh, when we were setting up our manufacturing facilities, I actually took some of the engineers on the team and we would go run the Ethernet wiring in the facility because like the cost of paying somebody to install ethernet is really expensive. And because all of our software was networked and in the cloud, we had to make sure we had good networking. So we were installing Wi-Fi access points with, you know, screwdrivers and everything. It, it, it was really about everybody understanding that, look, we have to get these things done and we cannot default to just paying somebody. We have to see, we have to look at the trade-off of if we spend some time on it and get it done, maybe that's worth the savings. Are there any unique advantages you think that you have because you're bootstrapped that a a well-funded competitor might not have? Yeah, that's a great question. And I I actually get asked this, um, I get asked this by engineers on my team because a lot of them worked at venture funded companies being in SF and they're like, well, Eric, why don't we just raise money? I want a TechCrunch article. You know, I want to be, I want to be cool. (laughs) (laughs) But first I tell them, no, we are cool, but, um, (laughs) But I, I think what what is uh, what is interesting is when you're at a when you're a bootstrap company at scale, it gives you the ability to work with autonomy and speed in a way that is uh, I think very unique. Even when I was at Flowtype, when we were just a seed stage company, or at the startups I've worked at as just as a software engineer before, the need to raise funding, you know, first your seed, then your Series A, then your Series B, etc really controls to an extent how much ownership you have of the product vision. It controls how fast you can move. It controls the direction you have to go in. Um, And that's something we don't have to do. It sounds like a scary thing, but also a kind of incredible thing. There are times when Raymond and I are in a room and we decide, hey, you know what, this would be a really cool idea. Uh, and then a week later, you know, it's it's fully in action. Um, and the, the ability to be, I think, bigger, but also move that quickly is definitely one of the distinct advantages. 
I yeah. think another one of the advantages that a lot of people don't um, don't realize is our number one duty is to our employees as opposed to to investors. If that makes sense, uh, the the there is no investor we have to satisfy with our decision making, which means really it is ourselves and our employees that need to be happy with what happens with the business. And I think that's also influenced a lot of our thinking. Give me some examples of, of how that's led to you making different decisions. Because I think that's a it's a really good point. I think any company, like you have to prioritize your employees, but if you have investors, like it suddenly kind of kicks your employees down a notch. You know, they're number two on your priority list. Yeah. And that's the I kind of kind of the unspoken thing of of Silicon Valley that, hey, well, you know, everybody's second secondary to uh to your your VCs on your board because if they don't give you that money for the next round, I mean everyone's fired. Yeah, everyone's that's that's the end. So good luck. It's uh, I think it's something that is it's subtle, but it, it touches a lot of uh, a lot of different decisions. I mean, I guess one example to give you something basic. Let's say we wanted to create a product roadmap. We can really create the timeline for the development of a product based on what we think is the best long term vision or what our product owner for that product believes is the best thing in the long term. There is no results that we must demonstrate by a certain timeline so that we can raise our series, whatever. Right? That's not a consideration we have to make. We can truly think at the time scale that we choose to. And that both allows our employees to deliver on the vision that they may have for a product, as well as let the business ultimately make a more independent, better decision. So there's a lot of stuff you can innovate on in a business. There's a million different directions you can go in. Uh, there's also a lot of accepted wisdom, best practices that you can just follow. What do you think the line is that you guys draw? What are some of the areas you guys innovate and do things differently? What are some of the areas where you guys just stick to the best practices? Sure, yeah. So I think um, in, in going, the, the, one of the innovations that I think is interesting, and this is you know innovative in some circles and not innovative in other circles, is trying to create that platform early and trying to scale the business horizontally early. When we had success with those shirts, when we had success with the API, success with T-Chip, I think we absolutely could have just chosen to focus on one of those products and and make that continue to grow. And we we do try and do that. However, really the overall vision of the company is more towards let's go horizontally, let's cover more markets. Um, and that's another example of the type of decision that you know a VC may disagree with. A VC might say, you know what, why don't you make this one product completely dominant in its market so that we can have our nice exit and and call it a day. So I think uh, that's something that we try and do differently. And uh, I guess on the, to answer the other part of your question, the side on which we make make decisions perhaps more conventionally um, is... Hmm. Um, there is no conventional side. <laughs> yeah, I mean, gosh, every every business is, is very different. So there's always some... No, I, I only have even more answers on the uh, on the different side. <laughs> give me some more. Give me some more of the different answers. Okay, so uh, I, I think a lot of the actions we've already taken to grow uh, our e-commerce properties, like Teachip, are 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 quite uh, are quite different and unexpected. Especially when I explain it even to some of our own employees who don't work on Teachip. So much of our creator bases in Asia, we've even opened co-working spaces in Vietnam. So we own two co-working spaces where our creators can come, attend classes grab drinks and, and hang out, basically. It, it's just one of those things that is just very unexpected how international some of the, the products are. One of the things that I strongly believe in is don't build products just for Silicon Valley. I think this is something overall companies are getting better at. But you know, even today, I, I use a Windows laptop. Everyone else on the team uses Macs. But I go to a lot of websites and they look terrible on Windows because every designer is on Mac and it's like they're not thinking about the rest of the world that's still on Windows. Um, that's 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 something that I, I really work with the team to make sure we avoid. Um, another, another big uh, decision that I had made early on was I didn't want our engineering team to just be in San Francisco. So our headquarters is here. We have a bit of every team here. Uh, but we also have our engineering team in, in Indianapolis, Dallas, where we have facilities, and also in Guadalajara, Mexico. I really believe these that today, if you're going to be building a product and you need to hire engineers, you need to start with a distributed team because the cost of building just in San Francisco is 
just not something that you can easily handle unless you have those millions of dollars from VCs. If you're bootstrapped like us, the reality is it's just not the right financial decision to only have engineers uh, in in one place. You have to take a take advantage of that international talent. So. Uh, in the same way that we do so for our product T-Chip and we look for customers everywhere uh, for our engineering team itself, we look for engineers everywhere. What do you think the future holds for you and for Scalable Press as a business? You've made it so far and you still have a lot of room to grow, but do you see yourself ever starting another startup? You know, do you see Scalable Press ever becoming something extremely different than it is today? I do. I do. I have a very... Um, I know exactly what I want to do. <laughs> people view printing. One thing I, I people tell me all the time is, uh, oh, you're in printing. Like printing is dying. Newspapers, blah, 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 which is true. I mean, newspapers may be dying. But the, the, the thing about printing is a lot of our customers today don't even know they're getting a custom printed product. It's less about, oh, let's get a custom printed you know, phone case or whatever. And it's much more about manufacturing on demand. So... Step one, we want to build efficient manufacturing in the print types we do today. T-shirts, phone cases, mugs, embroidery, etc. Step two is to continue expanding that until much of the custom printed market is something where something that is happening efficiently, where technology has truly arrived for the manufacturing process. Step three is to go beyond printing and really look at manufacturing. My overall belief uh, whether this is scalable press in the next couple years or 10 years or another business, my overall belief is that the idea of let's manufacture things by you know building a million of them in Asia, putting them in a cargo container, sending them in a boat to the US, putting them in a warehouse, and then picking and shipping them when somebody buys it is a ridiculous idea that one day we'll look back on and think, I can't believe people used to do things that way and took that many steps. I think there will be a day when a lot of what we purchase on a day-to-day basis is created on demand from the raw materials, uh, and it will be done quickly and at a low cost. That's what Scalable Press is going towards, starting with custom printing, and that's really what I'm passionate about. What do you think people listening in who want to start their own companies should take away from your story and your experiences, especially people who want to bootstrap, who aren't interested in raising money, and who really want to build a business to, to help make their lives better? I think the biggest lesson that I've learned about bootstrapping working here is you cannot compare yourself to the same timelines as your traditional venture funded business. We all know the stories of the Facebooks and the Twitters of the world who grew extremely quickly, raised round after round and an IPO, and then everybody's uh, happy more or less. Scooter but, companies worth a billion dollars after a year and a half. Exactly. If you look back in the history of Scalable Press, Raymond took a very long time by, by our tech entrepreneurship standards to build the business. He was very patient. It took him basically six years before it got to the point where he was ready to build an engineering team. That's crazy. Who even runs a company for six years anymore? But that patience is what allows us to be large and successful and bootstrapped to this day. Uh, and that's still affected us Today, when we look at our product growth, we don't always look at it as unless it's a rocket ship trajectory, this, this product is not working and we need to nix it. Instead, we really think long term and think about strategically, are we doing the right thing? And as long as long term, we're making the right decision and we believe in it, we'll keep doing it even when the growth is not there. We have dips and that's okay because there's no VC telling us that you know it's game over because something dips. Um, and I think that's what's really magical about bootstrapping. You get to make those decisions for yourself. Um, but that can mean the timeline is long, and that's okay too. That's great advice. I think one of the biggest pitfalls for, for people bootstrapping their own business is that 98% of the information out there is intended at high-growth venture-funded startups, and it will lead you down the wrong path if you're not careful who you're getting advice from. Eric, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been great listening to your story, listening to how Scalable Press got started and your role in it. Can you tell listeners where they can go to learn more about what you guys are up to and about what you're up to personally if you share that sort of thing online as well? Yeah, absolutely. So the, uh, if you check out scalablepress.com, that uh, gives you a little bit more information about the company. I have very little social media presence these days. Uh, <laughs> man, too much, 
not enough time, I suppose, or I'm just lazy. But yeah, definitely learn more about Scalable Press. If anybody's in the market for a job, we're hiring across just tons of roles. So there's a nice careers page uh, on our website. So do check us out. And if you want an API for printing, uh, feel free to reach out to me and I'll throw some credits your way. Uh, you can always email me at eric at scalablepress.com. Thanks so much, Eric. Thank you, Corlin. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.